Okay, everybody, uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, welcome to the second last class of the spring 2016 visor term. And uh, thank you for spending this Victoria Day with us. Um, next week, Ilinka Iraskiu from uh, University of British Columbia SENS Department, Central, Eastern, Northern European Studies, will be talking about the Lacanian unconscious and the notion of the uncanny. And that'll be our last class of the season. Uh, this uh, visor class uh, will be taught by Samir Gandesha, who many of you know. Um, Samir will be talking about the new spirit of authoritarianism that's sweeping over the United States and the Western world, and uh, what he refers to as the neoliberal personality type. Um, before he gets started, though, just a little bit of uh, housekeeping. Uh, just so you know, uh, the bathroom is in the back. Um, get up and go anytime you have to. It's in the, in the back on the left. But mind the bric-a-brac. There's a little bit of clutter back there. Um, also, there's a water pitcher. If you have a cup, you can help yourselves. Um, also wanted to uh, just extend uh, my thanks to uh, my co-organizer, Amjo Hall, who's standing in the back there. Um, as well as the uh, folks at the Ore Gallery, in particular, uh, Jonathan and Jonah, uh, without whose voluntary service, this event would not be possible. Um, as many of you know, uh, this is basically a transactionless affair, so no money changes hands. We don't pay to use this space. Um, the Ore Gallery, out of the generosity of their hearts, uh, lets us use this space. Uh, we don't pay the speakers, the lecturers, anything, um, and we have no budget. So, you know, everything is done out of the, the generosity of people's hearts, and, and that means a lot to us. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Anyway, um, we're going to be doing something a little bit unusual today. <clears throat> uh, usually every term, uh, the Young Hegelian Society decides uh, that we're going to honor one person for their meritorious community service inside and outside of academia. Um, some of the previous recipients of the Indoctrinator Award are actually here today. Uh, Hilda Fernandez is one. Um, others include Jerry Zaslov, Steve Collis, and um, Glenn Coulthard. Uh, coincidentally, uh, this term's Indoctrinator uh, is Samir Gandesha. And uh, when I contacted him about the award, uh, he was so enthusiastic uh, that he actually wanted to give his own visor lecture, which is uh, unprecedented in the history of the award. Um, so, um, without further ado, uh, I'd like to call Samir Gandesha to receive his Certificate of Merit and his uh, visor, <laughs> after which point uh, he'll give his lecture.
Well, thank you so much, Dan. Um, I can't uh, tell you how much of an honor this, this is, uh, not least because um, I'm included in, in such a truly illustrious uh, um, company um, as Hilda, Glenn, um, and, uh, Steve, and... and Jerry, of course, I can't forget Jerry. So, yeah, this is a, a, a huge honor, and um, some of you may know also that uh, I'm, I'm the director of the Institute for the Humanities, and, and we put on a lot of different events and, and um, try to keep uh, the public sphere um, somewhat alive in, in the city. Um, and, you know, I think we do an okay job, but I really think that the, the kind of work that... Uh, um, that Dan Edelman and Am Joe Hall um, and the, the, the great folks at, at the Org Gallery are, are doing is, is phenomenal. Um, again, it's a, it's, it's a set of non-exchange relations and um, it, it is a space where people from all kinds of different communities can come together and, and have really serious uh, and critical yet um, uh, friendly discussions about extremely important topics and unfortunately I haven't been able to come to these sessions as much as I would like uh, which also has something to do with the fact that I'm often you know um, in a given week doing um, two or three events in the evening I actually have to spend s some time at home uh, but I think what you're doing is, is wonderful so if I could just get a round of applause for um, for Visor and for the Org Gallery for Jonathan and Jonah. I just wish something like this had existed uh, uh, many, many years ago uh, when I was a graduate student. I, I would have benefited enormously from it. I'm just going to grab my talk. Is it too dark for you? Yeah, it's fine. I think I can actually see. Yeah, and, and people can hear me in, in the back. Um, so uh, before I go any further and start to, to uh, get into my talk and sort of set up and, and, then, and then present it, uh, I'd like to do uh, a couple of things. The first is uh, I'd like to um, acknowledge uh, that uh, this event is taking place on uh, the unceded uh, territories of the Coast Salish people, um, uh, the Squamish, uh, Tsleil-Waututh, um, and Musqueam peoples. Um, and I, I would also just like to say that uh, this talk uh, is something that really I've been kind of working on for, for some time. It, um, I, you know, the previous talk I, I gave was in a sense part one, which really looked at the, the politics of, of disgust. Um, and that had to do with something I'd written uh, several years earlier. And so this is an attempt to further develop the argument. But I think what you, you'll probably notice is that um, it, it requires further development. And so I'm, I'm very interested to hear your, uh, your, your critical uh, responses and commentary. Um, it's already been translated in, into uh, Spanish by, uh, by a, a, a colleague in, in Argentina, and they've had a, a discussion of it, quite, quite an interesting and critical one, and I've, I've really appreciated a lot of the feedback they've, they've sent me. I, I presented it to the um, Social Psychological Analytic Society um, 
in a kind of virtual way via Skype and had a very good two-hour discussion with them about the, the paper and they also provided me with some very helpful feedback. So uh, it is something I'm really trying to develop. Um, but more specifically, I'd like to thank uh, a, a couple of people here in, in, in this room um, for their immediate feedback on, on the paper. And, and Dan Edelman is one. Dan read the paper a while ago and provided me with some feedback on it, which was very helpful. Uh, Hilda Fernandez has been hugely Im important in terms of just engaging a dialogue and helping the, 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 art, the ideas along. And also uh, Kit Fortune, who I, I don't think is, is here tonight. Um, but these are people who, who are involved um, in uh, an endeavor at the Institute to try to bring psychoanalysis back uh, into kind of critical discussion um, of, uh, of, of politics and in particular authoritarianism. We've got a, a lecture series that, uh, that we're planning that'll begin really in, in, uh, in August. Um, and then we'll carry through to the through the year, and we'll we'll hopefully have some legs, and we'll go uh, subsequent years. Um, obviously, I, I'm aware of the, criti the, the the criticisms of psychoanalysis in, in figures like Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari, and so on. And that's something we we could open up. But I think there's some very valuable insights of psychoanalysis, particularly in terms of uh, its insights into social psychology and, 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 and politics that I think is, is worthy um, of bringing back into, into the discussion. So that's something to, to, to look out for. And in fact, as, as a kind of kickoff to that, this Friday, uh, we've got a panel or sort of a round table uh, on psychoanalysis and the Trump phenomenon. I, I think that's going to be quite, quite interesting. Hilda will be participating in that, as will uh, Jay Frankel, who's a, a forensian psychoanalyst based in New York, who, who is going to be in, in, in town specifically for that event. And I think it'd be quite, quite uh, engaging. So I encourage you, if you're interested in, in, the, in the, the subject, to please come out. All right, so those are my um, initial uh, remarks. I mean, I was really supposed to be here a little bit earlier, and uh, you know, Dan had said come by quarter to seven, and I ran to uh, into Am Joe Hall, and he waylaid me, and we ended up, uh, well, nipping out for a refreshment. Uh, so, um, any any problems with the talk? Just go and, and have a word with Am. Um, so, before I start, I'd also just like to say thank you for uh, coming out on uh, deceased. Monarch's Day for, for this. It's, it's really nice to see such a, such a large audience. Um, so essentially the talk um, it, uh, takes as its um, uh, working problem the fact that we're seeing over the last 20, 30 years, um, as ev I think everybody in this room knows and actually feels and lives, uh, um, uh, in, in their day-to-day -day lives, uh, a, a deepening of social and economic inequality. So we have that, um, but at the same time, rather than as one would perhaps expect if one had a fairly rationalistic understanding of politics, um, a, uh, a movement in the direction of radical democracy, uh, a movement in the direction of um, mounting uh, a full-scale and frontal attack on such social and economic inequality, we seem to have the opposite. We seem to have a, uh, an, in, an increasing tendency we see in, in, in the direction of, uh, of authoritarianism. Um, that's evinced by, um, for example, this most recent uh, election uh, uh, result in, uh, in Austria, uh, where the far-right presidential candidate um, came very close uh, to, to winning the Freedom Party. Um, and this is something obviously we're seeing in the United States uh, as well with, with the Trump phenomenon. Uh, we could 
in a way, towards the end of the talk, I, I, I get into a uh, discussion of, of Trump. You could talk about his actual social and economic policies as being, well, as, as Zizek says, uh, kind of center, center uh, uh, liberal. Um, but there are, of course, other aspects of Trump that are uh, extremely uh, authoritarian. So the, the paper really says perhaps um, revisiting uh, the social psychoanalytic dimensions of the Frankfurt School can help us try to make sense of, of this paradox. Um, and it's, it's fitting that you know, this discussion is happening here. Visor, the Vancouver Institute for Social Research, really is uh, nodding uh, or bowing to, in, in a certain way, um, the uh, Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, Institute for uh, Sozialforschung, which really um, started out by trying to understand uh, why it was that in, in Germany, uh, the country with the largest membership uh, of um, uh, 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 social democratic um, uh, 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 followers, um, you have in the context of a worldwide economic and social crisis, not a socialist revolution, uh, but a kind of counter-revolution, a kind of reactionary modernism, as, as uh, Jeffrey Herf puts it. So a number of the figures of, of the Frank School really sought to try and understand exactly um, what uh, was going on in this context. And, and that's the, the, the starting point. I, the, the paper really tries to ask about the possibility of taking up the concept of the authoritarian um, personality which comes out of that uh, milieu and um, to try and really uh, transform it and develop it so that it can speak to, to our own concerns and our, our own problems today. Okay, so so my question in this paper is the following. To what extent is it possible to re revisit Theodore W. Adorno's concept of the authoritarian personality in order to at least begin to clarify this seemingly paradoxical conjunction of deepening socioeconomic inequality on the one hand and uh, right-wing uh, populism or, or authoritarianism uh, on the other. Arguably Adorno in the entire first generation of critical theory can be understood as seeking to provide through an appropriation of psychoanalysis and cultural critique more generally an account of a crisis of subjectivity and experience that constitutes a much needed corrective to materialist theories of the objective crisis of capitalism um, that would inevitably point towards a, a transformation of social, political, uh, and economic relations. Today, a return to the psychoanalytical dimension of critical theory would seem to be necessitated by the fact that in the, in the face of evidence that neoliberal policies not only do not work, their effects can actually be counterproductive and deeply damaging, which is to say, economically self-undermining. Nevertheless, they continue, so neoliberal policies continue to be pursued with redoubled fervor by states with, apart from certain notable exceptions, um, uh, more or less um, the full, if passive, acquiescence uh, of, uh, of its citizens. So I'm really thinking about the, the moment last summer um, uh, of Syriza uh, um, uh, staging uh, the referendum, winning it, and then capitulating in the, in the face of the pressures of, uh, of uh, uh, the Troika just several weeks uh, later. 
For and, and another example, one year after the OECD produced a report clearly outlining potentially disastrous deflationary effects a la Japan of neoliberal policies, there's little evidence of any of its member countries having materially altered course or planning to do so in the foreseeable future. Psychoanalysis, therefore, provides us with an important means by which we can locate the limits of the still prevailing understanding of politics that, that assumes the rationality of subjects in pursuing their own self-interests. A particularly illustrative case uh, of this was revealed in the 2010 midterm US elections, during which time Guardian writer Gary Young interviewed a poor white woman protesting President Obama's appearance uh, at a campaign event for Democratic incumbent Harry Reid. The woman who aggressively, indeed abusively, aired her opposition to migration of um, undocumented workers from the south of the border. When asked about whether her life had been materially improved by the Obama administration's comparatively progressive health care, unemployment insurance, and taxation policies, she demurred. When Young pushed her to respond specifically to the question of whether Obamacare wasn't a good thing for people in her position, she replied that, and I quote, to be honest, I've never really been into the whole Obamacare thing because what is really making me ill are all the illegals coming over the border, end quote. She expressed her dissatisfaction or disaffection for the illegals having large families and living off uh, public funds. However, as it turned out, that past year, Nevada had in fact experienced a net loss of 50,000 unauthorized um, so-called immigrants. Psychoanalysis can provide insight into the manner in which individuals participate actively and affectively through the powerful emotions of love and hate and through the way they establish their relations with otherness in reproducing the conditions of their own domination and undermining their own material interests as a result. In the case of the poor white woman, one could say what is undermined, in fact, is an interest in self-preservation itself. Um, insofar as a lack uh, of medical insurance in the U.S. is, of course, potentially catastrophic. As a consequence, psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis can point in the direction uh, of helping to identify the limits and possibilities of genuine self-determination and will formation. The idea that lies at the center uh, of the concept of the authoritarian personality, um, namely the identification with the aggressor, that's the title of my talk, of course, um, is what the preeminent English language Adorno translator and interpreter Bob Hulot Kentor calls his uh, vade mecum, or touchstone. Uh, in fact, Adorno's concern with the problem of the identification with the aggressor was for him after 1933 um, not just a, a theoretical concern, but an existential problem of how to resist the pressures confronted by any displaced person or refugee to assimilate uh, to his, his or her um, new homeland or place of refuge referring both to their, uh, both to their predicament as well as those um, uh, uh, whose fate was far worse, Adorno states with his uh, collaborator uh, Horkheimer with reference uh, to an order that was installing itself as increasingly totalitarian, and I quote, everything must be used and all must obey. The mere existence of the other is a provocation. Every other person who doesn't know his place must be forced back within his proper confines, those of unrestricted terror. Anyone who seeks refuge must be prevented from finding it. Those who express ideas which all long for peace, a home, freedom, 
the nomads and players have always been refused a homeland. Adorno ref refers to the connection between this existential reality of, he faced in American exile and the development of, his ar of the arguments uh, of what was to become his book, Negative Dialectics. As he says in a lecture presented at the University of Frankfurt on November 11th, 1965, in which he, he discusses the Hegelian claim that the negation of the negation results in positivity, and I quote, I cannot, resist res uh, I cannot resist telling you that my eyes were open to the dubious nature of this concept of positivity uh, only in emigration, where people found themselves under pressure from society around them and had to adapt to the very extreme circumstances. In order to succeed in this process of adaptation, in order to do just what they were forced to do, you would hear them say, by way of encouragement, and you could see the effort it cost them to identify with the aggressor, yes, so-and-so is really positive. After elaborating on this point, Adorno goes on to say, quote, for this reason, therefore, we might say, putting it in dialectical terms, that what appears to be positive is essentially the negative, the thing to be criticized, end quote. In other words, what appears to be positive ultimately harbors the non-identical, the other, the different, which it violently assimilates through an act of subsumption. So in fact, the idea of the identification with the aggressor could be said to lie very much at the heart of Adorno's philosophy, uh, his negative dialectics uh, as a whole. In what follows, and I first discussed some of the central features of the concept of the authoritarian personality, and then uh, proceed to outline some of the substantive criticisms of the study itself, as well as some of its underlying psychological and sociological assumptions. If the concept of the authoritarian personality is to be made available to understand the personality structure of neoliberal uh, capitalism, two criticisms must be addressed in particular. The first is the study's reliance on the now uh, questionable concept of state capitalism. While it is far from clear that we have in any straightforward way entered a period in which the state has simply withdrawn in exact uh, proportion to uh, the extent that market forces have reasserted themselves. If the concept of the authoritarian personality is to be viable, it must be articulated in a way that is sensitive to both the identity and difference in the conditions of contemporary capitalism. So the second is the study's reliance on a normative Freudian understanding of the process of ego formation through the conflict with the father, the Oedipal conflict. This, I suggest, can in part be addressed by leaning slightly more heavily on Shandor Ferenczi's original formulation of the idea of, of the identification with the aggressor, which itself entails a constellation of concepts of identification, interjection, and dissociation, and shifts its uh, emphasis towards the pre-Oedipal phase of development. If these two criticisms can be uh, convincingly addressed, then perhaps it may be possible to develop the idea of the neoliberal personality, which might in turn enable us to provide a provisional answer um, to the question which I posed at the outset. Namely, how can we understand the conjunction of staggering inequality with the rise of authoritarian uh, populist movements, rather than social movements that seek a structural transformations of the conditions of such social inequality? So now I'm just going to look at the concept of the authoritarian personality. The concept of the authoritarian personality is to be understood in the context of a constellation of concerns that lie at the heart of the first generation of critical theory, again, the Institute for uh, Social Research. 
Um, lying at the heart of this are early studies in the 1920s of the political attitudes of German workers, uh, Max Horkheimer's notion of the anthropology of the bourgeois epoch, his 1930s uh, studies of authority in the family, Adorno's lectures and public, uh, Adorno's um, uh, uh, public lectures and radio interviews from the 1960s, and of course the monumentally though much impugned, um, although increasingly reread, collaborative Berkeley public opinion study that culminated in the publication of The Authoritarian Personality, which was published in 1950. A key and ex extremely influential contribution in this, in this respect was made by Eric Fromm in his 1941 book, Escape from Freedom, in which he sought to integrate social and psychological approaches through a concept of social character. The importance of this work cannot be uh, overemphasized insofar as it sought to bring together the work of Marx and Freud, whose basic assumptions about the relationship between individual and society were, to say the least, not easily reconciled. Fromm argued that social character had to be understood as mediating between the needs and drives of the individual on the one hand and the social ro roles, norms, uh, and practices um, on the other. Social character represented a patterned response to the contradictory nature of drives and needs and social demands. Fromm's research employed this concept in studying the political attitudes of German workers included, and, and concluded um, that while superficially progressive, their deep underlying personality structure uh, was profoundly conservative, if not reactionary. If the arguments of escape from freedom were received by Adorno and some of the other members of the Institute with a certain ambivalence, the concept of the authoritarian personality can be said to be most closely tied to the argument, um, arguments of the book that Adorno co-authored with Max Horkheimer and to which I've already referred, um, that initially took the form of set of conversations in 1940s transcribed by Gretel and Adorno called um, Dialectik der Aufklärung or Dialectic Enlightenment. In fact, I hadn't referred to it my, uh, the, um, the first part of the paper I, I just skipped over, so I'm referring to it now for the first time. Um, in his talk, uh, Scientific Experiences of a European Scholar in America, Adorno states um, that the element, elements of anti-Semitism chapter of this text were determinative for his participation in the collective authorship um, with Levinson of, uh, Levinson et al. Um, of the authoritarian personality. So, Basically, there's a, this very strong link between the, the dialectic enlightenment and authoritarian personality. I'm going to skip over the, the, uh, some of the background to authoritarian, uh, sorry, to the dialectic enlightenment. Um, the basic argument, though, of this text is that enlightenment is a means by which the species secures its survival. However, but grossly uh, overshoots its mark and threatens the very life that the machinic ratio of enlightenment sought to preserve in the first place. This, in, in many ways, is our, is our own uh, uh, predicament uh, today. While enlightenment doesn't simply aim at the mere preservation of bare life, but rather promises happiness, eudaimonia, uh, or literally strong indwelling spirit, um, often uh, translated also as, as flourishing, or the good life, the quotidian existence of the self becomes meaningless, and therefore, in its precise sense, despiritualized or lifeless. The setting of Beckett's Endgame, which was really going to be the, the other talk that I was proposing to give tonight, um, uh, the, the setting of, of Beckett's Endgame is a suffocating, claustrophobic bunker uh, outside of which all is kaput uh, or corpsed, um, for example, and represents the image of the life that does not live. 
Lying at the heart of the concept of the authoritarian personality is a, pro is a problem of, of ego weakness in Adorno's view. The historical roots of this problem are already present in Horkheimer's work from the 1930s, in his uh, um, uh, writings that I already previously mentioned on um, uh, authority in the family. In those studies, uh, Horkheimer, and Adorno, uh, Horkheimer argues that under conditions of liberal capitalism, the classic Freudian account of the formation of the sources of moral agency, enlightenment, or Mundischkeit, um, the capacity to speak for oneself, held sway. As Freud lays out in Lecture 21 of his introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, quote, the development of libido, as virtually I think everyone here knows, um, the male child's ego is constituted through the Oedipal conflict with the father over the mother. The successful negotiation of the Oedipal conflict for Freud entails a recognition on pain of castration that the mother is off limits to the child. And at this moment of recognition is at the same time the internalization of the father's law, which is to say the formation of conscience or the superego. Freud states that, quote, from the very intense emotional processes that come into play at the moment of this infantile object choice, from this point onward, still quoting, the human individual has to devote himself to the great task of detaching himself from his parents, and not until this task is achieved can he cease to be a child and become a member of the social community, end quote. However, where Freud draws con conservative inferences, Horkheimer draws more radical ones. In other words, the formation of the ego through the Oedipal conflict becomes the basis for the very autonomy that lies at the heart of the possibility of, of opposition to illegitimate authorities. The Oedipal conflict is itself, as it were, the site of the dialectic of enlightenment. It is a moment of individuation that makes possible practical transcendence of the reified world of individuality. Um, in Eric Fromm's terms, in Escape from Freedom, it's that moment at which um, the negative freedom, the freedom from um, the uh, pre-established authorities of the old order, uh, make possible a kind of transformation into um, the structures of positive freedom. So the, the institutionalization of a kind of radical democratic um, uh, set of relations in everyday life. And this is something we can, we can come back to if, if we like. With the advent of what Friedrich Pollock, uh, with with what uh, sorry, with the advent of what Friedrich Pollock comes to call in the 1940s state capitalism, we see the emergence of a social formation in which competition between individual firms is supplanted by the state, which comes to play a greater coordinating role in managing the tendency um, within capitalism towards overproduction and underconsumption. As a result, the very logic of socialization changes dramatically in Horkheimer's view. The father, is, uh, the father now is subject to a dramatic diminution of freedom and social power, and his authority within the family begins to correspondingly decline. It leads to what Alexander Mitsulish uh, calls a society without fathers. The argument is that with the displacement of the imago of the father in the family and other social institutions by an increasingly anonymous system of rational legal authority and the formation of the rational ego, um, uh, misfires and leads to its circumvention by the prevailing superego that establishes its unquestioned authority over the drives. In other words, the individual lacks a secure focal point for identification and orientation. This then becomes the basis uh, for the metapsychological account of the authoritarian personality um, tested by Adorno and his collaborator, uh, collaborators via em empirical research. Uh, on the fascist potential among uh, American university students. 
Um, this relative weakness of the ego in relation to the societal superego leads to an excessive form of obedience to external authorities. But in order for this to be bearable, the authoritarian personality type evinces as well a high degree of aggressiveness towards those who are, who are relatively um, uh, powerless socially. This is why um, this personality type is also referred to as a sadomasochistic uh, personality type. Um, the personality type who is uh, sadistically cruel and potentially violent um, uh, towards the weak and masochistically self-subordinating vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis the powerful. So this dynamic is, I think, really the, the key to understanding the authoritarian personality uh, type. What the research showed, based on the so-called uh, F or fascist scale, um, is that authoritarian personalities exhibited a cluster of traits, um, although the reverse did not hold, uh, in other words, anti-authoritarian, or what they come to call democratic personality types, tended to be differentiated and didn't s share um, uh, similar traits. These traits uh, uh, characterizing the authoritarian personality included a tendency towards stereotypy, uh, a fear and hatred of difference, associated as it was uh, with uh, weakness, um, projectivity, and submissiveness towards existing uh, authority. Um, ego weakness, and, uh, and so forth. In short, the authoritarian personality was a personality type who took up a cold, harsh attitude towards those who were com comparatively powerless and were overly compliant with respect to the demands of the socially powerful. A conclusion drawn from, the, from this study is that because the attitudes towards members of the outgroup amongst this group um, uh, are irrational, they're not susceptible to reasoned argumentation, nor is the strategy of encouraging sympathy towards outside uh, uh, groups. Indeed, indeed such a, an encouragement of sympathy may worsen the problem as it may exacerbate a hidden fear uh, of, of, of weakness. Um, again, in the authoritarian personality type. And I think that the conclusion really moves in the direction um, of um, uh, looking again at the larger institutional structures of society that either uh, uh, inhibit or facilitate uh, people having some kind of democratic uh, say in um, uh, the, the terms of, uh, of their everyday lives. So not just representative democracy, but some form of control uh, and indeed ownership uh, of um, their lives, their, some say in, in what happens in the workplace and so on. So this is what, what Eric Fromm is talking about in Escape from Freedom in relation to this idea of positive freedom. It's not just simply convincing people that they, they shouldn't be authoritarian or they are being irrational, but rather really looking at the institutional conditions that lead to uh, such a personality type. So let me just turn to some criticisms and then um, uh, move, in the uh, move in the direction of uh, sketching out a, a kind of theory of, uh, of a neoliberal personality type. So when it was first uh, published, the authoritarian personality was beset with um, uh, two basic forms of criticism. Uh, one was uh, political and the other was methodological. I'm not going to spend too much time there. The political one was basically uh, to the effect that there was um, an exclusive concern with the authoritarianism uh, on the right. Uh, and unlike Hannah Arendt's critique of uh, uh, totalitarianism, there wasn't a corresponding worry about an authoritarianism 
uh, of the left. Um, and I think that that's also something that this um, can meaningfully open up and, and probably should be investigated, a kind of authoritarianism of the left as well as the right. I think that's, that's, uh, that's important. And then there are methodological failings that, that were identified by um, sociologists and political scientists who, who really worked closely with empirical uh, methods. I'm gonna skip over those and I really just wanna focus on the problems uh, of, on, on the one hand, as I mentioned, state capitalism and then the reliance, the um, you know, too great a reliance in my view uh, on orthodox Freudian uh, categories. So as previously, previously suggested, Pollock's idea of state capitalism um, uh, undergirds the theory of the authoritarian uh, personality. For um, Pollock, state capitalism uh, consists of essentially three departures from the liberal form Direct controls replace uh, the market. Um, old and new devices are employed to secure the, the full employment of all resources, including so-called human resources. Um, and in its, it, in its totalitarian form, this benefits only certain groups, uh, whereas within democracy, um, it benefits uh, the people as a whole. It seems deeply questionable that any of these three features of state capitalism obtain today. Uh, on the, on the, the, the first point, market mechanisms uh, have come to uh, replace um, uh, direct state controls. Full employment is no longer a desideratum of uh, public policy. And three, the concept of totalitarianism itself um, has been rendered obsolete in the wake of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and it is highly questionable that China could be characterized as totalitarian. Social policies in the West no longer, if in fact they ever did, benefit the people as a whole. Be this as it um, be this uh, all as it may, it is far from clear that the form of neoliberal capitalism that has supplanted both totalitarianism and Keynesianism uh, can be characterized in an unproblematic way as a replacement of state or political institutions by market mechanisms. While it is not possible to engage in a fulsome discussion of this difficult question here, it is possible to make a few remarks in this direction. While certain characterizations of neoliberalism, such as that offered by Pierre Bourdieu, tend to suggest this, the consensus is that neoliberalism doesn't do away with the state, but simply alters its role. So in David Harvey's influential view, neoliberalism constitutes the return of a certain kind of uh, primitive accumulation, Marx's term, or what uh, Harvey calls accumulation by dispossession. And this uh, entails four distinct processes. One, privatization and commodification. Two, financialization. Three, the management and manipulation of crises. And four, the state redistribution uh, of wealth upwards, the so-called trickle up effect, right? And this is the source of uh, our, our problem of uh, massive and increasing social inequality. Um, I have to just parenthetically say that uh, I, I think Glenn Coulthard's uh, critique of, uh, of David Harvey is quite devastating, that for all of his attempt to bring back in this idea of primitive accumulation, Harvey doesn't really focus uh, at all on the ongoing dispossession of indigenous lands. Um, and that's, uh, that's, a, that's a huge oversight that, that needs to be uh, certainly corrected. Um, in Foucault's account of neoliberalism, centering on a detailed analysis of the founding order of the post-1940, 49 Federal uh, German Republic in Ordo Liberalism, Foucault's emphasis is on the manner in which 
given its radical discontinuity, state institutions were overtly grounded in the economic logic of a, a quickly accelerating Wirtschaft Wunder, the economic miracle in, in, the, in the post-war period in, in West Germany. Significantly, neoliberalism centered on a new mode of governmentality or conduct of conduct, entailing a redoubled uh, responsabilization of the subject. That is, the subject was now responsible for making himself the center of ent entrepreneurial activity. Picking up on Harvey's uh, and Lapa Vista's emphasis on the growth and expansion of finance within neoliberalism, Maurizio Lazzarato, who was, as many of you know, just in, in, in town a couple of weeks ago, um, shows the way in which the state has come to play um, a key role, particularly after the crash of 2007-2008 as the lender of last resort, which it assumes on the behalf of its citizens. The combination of sovereign and public and growing private debts for, uh, amongst other things, university education, um, uh, housing mortgages, uh, as well as personal consumption, leads to what he calls the making of indebted man. Through a reading of Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, Lazzarato suggests that the objective relations of debt, financial debt, or schulden, leads to an objective, or sorry, a subjective condition of, of guilt or schuld. This constellation, in his view, has played a key role in profoundly diminishing the possibilities of the kind of social solidarity that would be itself capable of challenging the power of, uh, of capital and the neoliberal social institutions that, uh, that keep it uh, in, in place. The relation between creditor and debtor that, in his view, has come to actually supplant the capital wage labor relation. This is a, you know, a questionable and highly controversial view. Um, is therefore uh, far more than simply an economic relation, but fundamentally also a political relation. Debt is itself a form uh, of, of governance. Um, and again, I mean, I, I just say the way that uh, Lazzarato is understanding the workings of neoliberalism as dividing the, uh, the debtors from one another and subverting social solidarity is very similar to Eric Fromm's emphasis and also Hannah Arendt's emphasis on isolation right? and, and, um, uh, and, and, and loneliness, and the, then the susceptibility of individuals who are rendered such um, to uh, uh, authoritarian and totalitarian appeals. Uh, so this is, seems to be a kind of red, red uh, line, a red thread um, through um, the, the literature that's important. So, now, to, to move on to the concept of the identification with the aggressor, and then I'll um, uh, try, to, try to conclude fairly, fairly quickly then. Um, along with the presupposition of the, the Keynesian or totalitarian variants of state capitalism, another key weakness in the concept of the authoritarian personality, as I've already previously suggested, is its reliance on Freudian psychoanalysis to provide a normative account of the formation of the ego there are two aspects of this critique. The first is that the general conception of the self in Freudian psychoanalysis as a monological or closed system. The second was its specific reliance on the assumption of a strong father figure to ground successful moral development. According to this first line of critique, feminist psychoanalyst Jessica Benjamin argues, quote, within this closed system, the ego invests objects with his desire and takes in these objects to further his autonomy from them. 
This conception of the individual cannot explain the confrontation with an independent other as a real condition of development and change. It does not comprehend the process of transforming and simultaneously being transformed by the other, end quote. It is perhaps for this reason that the general conception of the self within orthodox Freudian psychoanalysis, the conception of humans as drive-regulating animals in the, world, in the words of uh, Stephen Mitchell, has given away to a more contemporary view of humans as meaning-generating animals, end quote. The reliance on Freud's account of the self, emphasizing the internal integration and organization of the drives in relation to the external requirements of society or civilization, ultimately relies on a Habesian account of civilization, as laid out inter alia in the speculative anthropology of the primal horde in Totem and Taboo, um, uh, 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 as elsewhere. Um, that sits rather uncomfortably with some of the underlying assumptions of Adorno's social philosophy. So basically, I, I'm pointing to a bit of a contradiction in, in Adorno's um, uh, appropriation of uh, uh, Freud here. More specifically, Jessica Benjamin uh, argues that the concept of the authoritarian personality relies on the questionable patriarchal assumption that the normative development of the ego can occur only through its confrontation with the internalization of the authority uh, of a strong father. Benjamin, Benjamin um, states that, quote, rejecting the alternatives of internalized authority versus seamless conformity, we may still inquire into the impact of this culture upon the character of motherhood and domestic privacy. Uh, it is also important to consider the consequences of the possibility um, that the de-gendering and depersonalizing of authority allows both members to play uh, the roles formally restricted um, uh, to one, end quote. If one considers Adorno's imminent critique of Kant's conception of autonomy and negative dialectics, or his idea of, the, uh, of dependence on the otherness uh, that defies subsumption, both in dialectic enlightenment and elsewhere, as alluded to above, Adorno is, despite his reliance on Freudian account of ego formation, much closer to Jessica Benjamin's intersubjective account of personality than uh, would appear to be the case on first glance. Adorno makes this clear in a discussion uh, of his concept of um, Hegelian concept of it and, and toys are wrong. I'm not going to read, read that quote, but essentially uh, Adorno is um, uh, very much grounded in, in a critical confrontation with, uh, with Hegel, and Hegel's account of uh, the person, uh, the subject, is fundamentally uh, intersubjective. Um, and that, again, sits uh, uneasily with, with Freud's more mon monological view. Um, so this is a rather different picture than that offered by Freud of an individual who's faced with the task of working through his neurotic symptoms by coming to terms with long repressed uh, wishes from childhood that return in dreams and parapraxies. It would um, make sense, therefore, to approach the concept of the authoritarian personality in light of the notion um, of the uh, identification with the aggressor in the work of the Hungarian analyst Sándor Ferenczi. While Hulot Kentor attributes the idea to Anna Freud's 1936, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense. The actual source of the idea is uh, Frenzy, who introduced it in a paper um, entitled The Confusion of Tongues Between Adults um, and the Child, The Confusion of the Language of Tenderness and Passion, presented at the 12th International Psychoanalytical uh, Congress in Wiesbaden in September 1932, uh, and then published the following year. By drawing on frenzy, it might be possible to avoid some of the philosophical and historical problems associated with Freudian uh, psychoanalysis 
uh, psychoanalysis in particular, which, as I've already suggested, understands the individual in terms of a kind of monad or closed system, uh, what Adorno calls a, a well-watered plant, in which the drives were the, uh, understood to be integrated and the individual adjusted successfully by the prevailing reality principle. In contrast to Anna Freud's understanding of the term, which suggests a momentary impersonation of the aggressor, in a sense reflecting back to the aggressor his own aggression uh, as a way for the individual to feel uh, at the time more secure. Ferenczi's use of the term entails, according to the psychoanalyst Jay Frankel, quote, a pervasive change in someone's perceptual world and about actually protecting oneself um, than about simply feeling more secure, drawing on his clinical experience with adults who had been deeply uh, traumatized uh, with an abusive adult in early childhood, Ferenczi reasoned that identification, the identification with the aggressor is a typical response to conditions of pervasive social and emotional insecurity. And, and this is actually a theme that gets taken up in so-called interpersonal uh, psychoanalysis in the work uh, of Henry Stack Sullivan, for example, right, where there's, there, there's a kind of dialectic between um, uh, anxiety-provoking situations, and then what he calls security operations that result as a way of dealing with those uh, anxiety-provoking uh, um, situations. And I think this is an, an important thing that, 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 that needs to, to be further worked on. Um, Ferenczi's particular understanding of the concept is especially attractive for our purposes insofar as a central feature of neoliberal capitalism entails the direct destruction of entire social security network um, through what Harvey describes as privatization, commodification, financialization, etc. The combined effect of these four process of processes of neoliberalization is profoundly traumatic, I would suggest, insofar as they deepen and accelerate the struggle for existence that has always uh, constituted the insecurity that characterizes, uh, characterizes capitalism um, at its very core. It is a response to a situation in which, to quote Frankel again, I'm, and this is a, a bit of a long quote, so please bear with me, um, we have lost our sense that the world will protect us uh, when we are in danger with no chance of escape. What we do is make ourselves disappear. This response goes beyond dissociation from present experience. Like chameleons, we blend into the world around us, into the very thing that threatens us in order to protect ourselves. We stop being ourselves and transform ourselves into somebody else's image of us. There are three dimensions of the, uh, this um, the problem of uh, identification with the aggressor that distinguishes it from Anna Freud's. Rather than the displaced aggression, what we find is compliance, accommodation, and submission, and it works in the following ways, as uh, the following way, as explained by Frankel. And I quote again: First, we mentally subordinate ourselves to the attacker. Second, this subordination lets us divine the aggressor's desires get into the attacker's mind to know just what he is thinking or feeling so that we can anticipate exactly what he is about to do and know how to maximize our own survival. And third, we do the thing that we feel will save us. Usually we make ourselves vanish through submission and uh, precisely attuned compliance with the attacker. In response, far from repudiating or violently repulsing the male malevolent adult, the child acquiesces and reflects back to the child what the latter requires of her. As in the Stockholm Syndrome, according to which the hostage com comes to identify with or love uh, even um, his captor, the child identifies with the abusive adult. 
in addition to the process of identifying with the adult as an ex a threatening external object, as an additional mechanism of defense, the child also introjects or transfers from the external to the internal reality, the adult's guilt, as a form of mastery of a force that, if it isn't mastered, could actually threaten the integrity of the child's ego. In particular, what the child introjects is the adult's guilt by herself taking the blame for the event. Moreover, the child undergoes a process, particularly at the moment of assault, of splitting and dissociation, a distancing of that part of the child that experienced the violence. So I just want to now um, conclude. Um, it seems to me that in the place of an account of the way in which the transformation from liberal to state capitalism undermines the normative process of ego, ego formation by undermining the father's authority, short circuits the moral agency of the individual, an account that draws on Shandor Ferenczi's notion of the identification with the aggressor seems more promising for the reasons that I have discussed. Moreover, in contrast to, to state capitalism that was premised upon the idea of, uh, that capitalism embodied a contradiction between overproduction and underconsumption, the doctrine at the heart of neoliberalism, namely monetarism, asserted an identity of interest between the power of money and society as a whole. Can the tripartite structure of identification, introjection, and dissociation help us understand the paradox that with the increasing inequality and social insecurity we see, the emergence not uh, of a strong radical democratic opposition, but rather authoritarian parties and, and social movements. It may do so in the following way. The ongoing crisis conditions of the neoliberal order constitute it as radically insecure. Um, Sorry, the, the, the ongoing crisis conditions of the, uh, of the neoliberal order constitute it uh, as radically more insecure than the one it replaces insofar as it comes into being through a rollback of the formal, informal, uh, formal and informal networks of solidarity and social security um, that it replaces. It can be therefore understood to be experienced as profoundly traumatic. Since Margaret Thatcher's infamous remark about the short, sharp shock, um, it is often referred to as a kind of shock therapy. And you see this in, 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 uh, in the Eastern Bloc and, and uh, in, the, in the wake of the Soviet Union, that what was required was shock therapy to return these states to uh, market relations. As a way of surviving such shock-like conditions, subjects could be said to identify overwhelmingly not with those social forces that could constitute a robust challenge to that order under conditions of solidarity with others facing similar forms of structural exclusion, but rather paradoxically with the very forces that maintain and benefit from those structures. They could be said to interject the aggressor's blame for the very conditions of the crisis itself. At the very outset, from Chile, in which the coup against uh, Allende constituted the, the, the first kind of neoliberal laboratory, to Ronald Reagan's attack on the air traffic controllers, to Thatcher's attack on the miners, working class organizations are blamed for the social and economic crisis of the Keynesian order, and of course would have to soften, if not renounce, um, their demands henceforth. Today, of course, the white working class, which has seen its fortunes decline precipitously in the last 30 years, appears to be increasingly drawn to the real estate mogul Donald Trump as a candidate for the presidential nomination for the Republican ticket. 
And this entails the third aspect of the identification with the aggressor, which is to say a dissociation from its own interests. Can, be any, can there be any doubt that a Trump presidency would entail, in, in contrast to that of uh, Bernie Sanders, an exponential deepening of misery for the majority um, of the population whom globalization has left behind? Yet the mimetic identification of the weak with putative strength appears to be a strategy of survival. The, sh the socially excluded can take vicarious pleasure in the bullying posture of the United States that expels Muslims and builds a wall on its southern border with Mexico. So it should be clear the neoliberal order, which is ever more abstract and anonymous in nature with which individuals identify, doesn't present itself as such. Rather, it concretizes itself as a strong ethnic or national, perhaps even racial body um, often manifested in the figure of the, 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 the strong leader that constitutes itself in a force field against an enemy alien against which it purports to defend the marginalized and the excluded, not, not just against such aliens, but also against uh, an increasingly venal political establishment. In fact, as Moishe Bostone has argued in his sharp analysis of anti-Semitism, grounded in his understanding of capitalism as a social relation mediated by abstract labor, this phenomenon represents in displaced, one-sided, and therefore reified form, a critique of capitalism insofar as, it, um, as the features that characterize it characterize the Jews. As Poststone argues, quote, the Jews were rootless, international, and abstract. Modern anti-Semitism, then, is a particularly pernicious fetish form. Its power and, dangerous, uh, and danger result from its comprehensive worldview, which explains and gives form to certain modes of anti-capitalist discontent in a manner that leaves capitalism intact by attacking the personifications of that social form, end quote. It is precisely in this sense it is precisely, in a sense, the socialism of fools, according to August Babel. Today, it could be argued, new groups have come to occupy the place once occupied by the Jews. In the case of Trump, as I have suggested, the figure of the Jew is replaced by the Muslim and the Mexican, um, who seem equally rootless, international, and abstract. The constitution of neoliberal subjectivity entails making each individual increasingly responsible for his or her own success or failure. One of the most cutting epithets served up by Trump is loser. And this, of course, could be said to increase pressure to lay blame for one's own success or lack thereof on the presence of members of an alien group. What is ailing the United States isn't a drastic and deepening social and economic inequality combined with declining investments in infrastructure, schools, etc., but rather it has to do with weakness, a lack of resolve and decision, the index of which is the porosity of borders and the movement of people beyond them. Thank you. So, Questions, comments? Yeah. This is for the conversation. I'm curious, have you read the Wilhelm Marx, I think 1933, Master of Angry Fascism? And tell me why, what that book is and why Yeah. I think Reich is is a figure who hold who held a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, of fascination for for figures like uh, Adorno and, and and Marcuse. I think Marcuse in particular uh, viewed his his early work as is really quite promising. Certainly, you know, in in light of uh, the subsequent 
um, appropriation of, of Freud by the, 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 the American revisionists, but I think they, they felt that he, he went completely off, off the rails in, in terms of um, the way in which his, um, his political philosophy handled uh, the question of, uh, of sexuality. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think they, they saw it as, as something that could really be, be built upon. But it is a, it's certainly an important um, uh, uh, contribution to thinking through the problem of fascism. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Ma? Very interesting. Um, I I think it. Uh, I, th I think it really can for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is, and I, I didn't really mention this um, in in the paper, but I, I, I think there uh, are aspects of uh, Fanon's work, um, particularly in uh, Black Skin, White Masks, um, that deal with the psychology um, of colonialism that that come from, I think, different premises to, to very, very similar conclusions to, to the Frankfurt School. Um, you can also read uh, in, the, in the works of, uh, of novelists like Zora Neale Hurston um, an, uh, an account of the psychology of uh, racial politics in the American South um, that have to do with the, the various kinds of pecking orders and the, and the, and the places that, that one occupies within them. So both the, the racial politics in the, in, in, in the states as well as the colonial politics, I think are, are really um, susceptible to the kind of analysis that, that we see here. And I, I think that in particular, the account of freedom that, uh, that Eric Fromm gives in his 1941 book is, is, is really quite interesting because uh, I, th I don't think you can understand a group um, like Daesh. Uh, I don't think you can understand um, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and and uh, other such groups, without an account of uh, processes of modernization um, and the tremendous convulsions uh, that these processes uh, lead to from within, um, and particularly you know in in countries like um, Syria, uh, like Iraq, uh, where you have a kind of modernization process that is really or was directed from from above, you have. Uh, tremendous forms of, of, of dislocation, which have historically also in the West been associated with, with, with modernization. You have a kind of um, uh, liberation from uh, established forms of authority without then any corresponding um, forms in which people can uh, actually participate uh, meaningfully in the, in the constitution of um, uh, everyday life. Um, in other words, there are no uh, political structures in which people can participate. And I think that leads um, in the direction of um, uh, forms of uh, political extremism and, and authoritarianism, uh, where one simply then bows down to a, a, a ruling ideology uh, uh, and, and a ruling uh, uh, state and, and, and political structure that in a way provides a kind of alter alternative source of, uh, of meaning that is, is now in, 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 in radical flux. And you know, Eric Fromm's 
position was this was in a way the, the, the situation of Europe on the, um, on the verge of the, uh, on the, ref on the verge of the Reformation. The power of the church and uh, traditional authorities are, are, are being challenged and what Luther and Calvin uh, offered was on the one hand a kind of push to the order that was you know, already falling right, in a kind of Nietzschean sense, but then also offered uh, as, um, uh, as a kind of um, solution uh, or as a way forward um, a, an account of God that was extremely um, cruel and sadistic, right? the God of uh, predestination to which one then sort of bows down. And I think this is very much part of the, the, the neoliberal order in a, in a highly secularized form today. And I think that, the, the, uh, that account of the susceptibility of people um, uh, in, a, in a world of increasing flux and insecurity in the post-Cold uh, War period um, is, is quite compelling, right? There's a, there's, there's a draw to uh, easy answers and easy solutions where you don't really have to think too much because somebody else will do your thinking for you and they'll provide you with the direction and, and, and order that, uh, uh, that you need. Um, I, I find that quite compelling. Um, and that can be also linked up with, uh, with Leo Leventhal's study uh, with, with uh, Norbert Gürtelmann, um, The Prophets of Deceit. Right, where the where the agitator is somebody who, uh, uh, rather than providing a kind of objective account of f the fears and frustrations of his followers, allows them to express them, and that expression takes the form of identifying um, uh, a clearly defined enemy. And I think you can find uh, similar kinds of uh, of strategies in, in Daesh, right, where the struggle. Is, is a very abstract one to, to reestablish the caliphate. It's an abstract struggle against the West as opposed to a concrete, I think, analysis of forms of uh, um, uh, neo-colonialism, imperialism in the, in the region. So I think that would be a really, really good place to start. Or 
introduction that um, I think that almost a kind of a, a surrounding the concept of the identification with the aggressor, we lose a little bit of that uh, uh, kind of critical uh, tool that psychoanalysis provides. But also, I was thinking in terms of neoliberalism, you, you mentioned something about the totalitarianism that is, um, yeah, is no longer No, thank you. No, I think this is this is a, a really important set of comments. Um, so the first, you start out really by uh, saying that um, you you think I'm not being entirely fair to Freud, and I, I think where you're going there, of course, is with the metapsychology and 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 the problem of, of Thanatos, the death drive, which is of course such a key part of uh, of Marcuse's uh, appropriation uh, of Freud and and really his defense. Freud against the, um, the, the, the revisionists in the, in the 1950s. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that, um, but I, I, I think that I have a reservation about that, and I'll come, I'll come back to it, and I think it parallels your own reservation about the, the transition from the individual level to the social level. Um, and, I th and I think this is really the, the, the big problem of, uh, I'm, I'm grappling with in the paper because uh, the starting points of a social critique um, and the starting point really uh, of, of Freud's own metapsychology, apart from you know, uh, the, the group psychology and, and um, the, the critique of, of, of civilization, um, are really from, uh, from the individual on, right? Uh, whereas from, from Marx, it, it really is from, from society to the individual, from Freud, it's the individual to, to, to the, the social. And, and I think this, again, underlies for me the, the importance of the work of, of Eric Fromm, early, the early work, not the work really that comes later and just becomes very affirmative and, and existential and, and kind of self-help-like, you know, and I, f I find that really, really uh, uh, problematic. Um, but I think the, the problem will always be to get from, from the individual to the social and, and back. So when we talk about trauma in the Ferencian situation, we're talking about it in a literal way, in a clinical setting, and then in a more metaphorical way in the, in the social. So I think that you're identifying an important weakness there, that that has to be uh, firmed up, how we get from that clinical setting to, to a social setting without psychologizing the social. I think that's, that's very good. Getting back to the first part of, of, of the question, um, 
so we have the individual level, the social level, and then really the, the metapsychological level where there's the positing of, of, of eros and, and thanatos, life instinct and, 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 and life drive, death, the death drive. That becomes also quite sp speculative in, in, in some ways, right? And it, it can answer almost ev every question, right, I in a way. Oh, well, yeah, it's, of course, it's the workings of the death drive. Um, but I think you need to, to historically and socially be able to identify different um, moments, different events, and their impact upon uh, uh, on uh, given, given societies. Um, the way we interact with one another, the way we relate to, to one another and ourselves has in fact changed quite a bit in the post-war period. Uh, and there's the, the 30 years after the, the Second World War, um, and then what comes after that, which is the, the, the epoch in which we're living, and how do we account for those, for those differences? Um, uh, and I, th I think this is some of my concern about the kind of Lacanian approach is that it, it, it's perhaps not as attentive to those specific historical transformations. And that's something else I'm trying to work through. Um, the, the transformations and also the, the, the family. I mean, this is, this is a, a key thing that gets uh, overlooked, I think, in a lot of social theory, is that in the, the neoliberal attack on, on the welfare state, uh, welfare pr provisions, entitlements, uh, uh, community centers, and, and so on, how does this then impact um, how uh, uh, adults and children interact? How does it impact upon the socialization of, of children? How do they then develop into, uh, into citizens? Does this encourage a kind of active and, 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 and political, uh, politically engaged citizenry, or does it inhibit it? Or is the constellation just different from what we've, what we've seen historically? I mean, I think those are really, really important and differentiated questions where it, the idea of the death drive, it would then have to be specified exactly how in, in these contexts it, it works out. And the context, um, and the, the last part of the question was about totalitarianism, and I, and, and I definitely agree that um, you know, when uh, New Labour in, in Britain takes up Thatcher's um, slogan that there is no alternative, uh, th there is some worry that you know, this um, new regime of uh, practices and institutions uh, is attempting to install itself uh, as a totalizing one um, and not now just confined to the West but increasingly uh, global in, 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 in scope what you know was called structural adjustment uh, in the 80s that, that you know applied through the World Bank to the so-called uh, developing world you see this in in, in India in uh, um, uh, Narendra Modi's um, uh, India, there, there has been a real attempt to institute similar kinds of, uh, uh, of policies um, that we would call in the West neoliberal, uh, with similar kinds of authoritarian effects as well. So um, I think it's a, it's a very good question. And it's, you know, the, the arguments still have to be worked out and refined. And uh, maybe that, that critical purchase has to be sharpened. And I, I, I agree with you there. Thanks. Uh, yeah.
Oh, I see. Okay, so, so the the presentation to the the the, the authoritarian personality type of the um, nature of evil that has historically been uh, perpetrated in the name of fascism, um, and then also emphasizing so the Allies' triumph and defeat, yeah. and, and with the Soviet Union. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I think this is exactly why in, in the paper I, I say that um, just kind of, you know, uh, summing up the arguments of the 1950 study uh, that um, uh, people who, who, who fit into this personality type are not susceptible to rational argumentation. And, and I think that's what you're suggesting in, in the realm of art. You know, you s art is, is both rational and non-rational. Um, uh, and certainly the historical view would suggest, look, I mean, <laughs> You, you are a member of a community that historically defeated fascism. Um, that's an attempt simply to persuade by rational means. And, and I think this is, again, the importance of psychoanalysis. You, you can't uh, engage at that level. Um, and, and it might very well uh, backfire if that individual uh, finds him or herself in the position of inadvertently or, or, or directly uh, identifying uh, with weakness because that's exactly what they're trying to get away from. They're in a sense trying to get away from the, the, the weakness in themselves and the, the fact that they feel disempowered. Uh, they feel uh, um, uh, tremendously un unsettled by the nature of, of social relations um, uh, which make their lives precarious, um, which make their lives uh, filled with, with suffering. Um, so if that's the case, if the analysis is that this personality type arises out of a sense of disempowerment, the only way to address it is by empowering people, right? And I think this is why the, 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 you know, the, the, the flip side of the discussion of, uh, of Trump really is a, a, a discussion of not just Sanders, but the social movement that, that you know, Sanders, in a sense, embodies and, and personifies. I think that's the way forward, in, in, in a sense, giving people some actual control over their lives and listening to people like um, Richard Wolff about the importance of uh, democratizing the workplace. Um, we can't consider ourselves to live in a, a democratic order when you know, the most important parts of our lives, that is to say our workplaces, are, uh, are fundamentally uh, undemocratic and hierarchical and authoritarian. So I think that's the, th that's the argument here. It's one for, for social praxis and, and, and change. It, it isn't about therapeutics. It's not about analyzing those who uh, fall under, under, this, uh, uh, under this personality type. I think it's really key. Um, again, this is the, the profound importance. I'm starting to realize how profoundly important this book by Eric Fromm is, The Escape from Freedom, because he's, his, his entire approach is really oriented towards uh, what are the, the political institutions within people, within which people uh, 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 participate, either actively uh, or, or, or passively. And if they're participating in a passive kind of way, are they susceptible to um, simply identifying with forms of power which will then release them of uh, the, the fact that, um, uh, you know, as, as Sartre put it, they're, they're condemned to freedom, 
and they, they want to quickly give up uh, that responsibility uh, that they have for making, you know, and remaking the conditions of, of their lives. Institutions don't, pre don't permit that. So, yeah, please. Yeah, that, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's specifically in the Arendtian understanding, or it is precisely the Arendtian understanding of totalitarianism that just doesn't hold t today. I mean, you know, for her, it was um, a, a movement in which society is kept in, 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 in constant motion, uh, underwritten by a particular uh, account of, of, of history, right? Uh, as a struggle between the races or as a struggle between the classes. Um, we, we don't have that understanding of uh, history in neoliberal terms any longer. In fact, in Francis Fukuyama, we have really the end of those kinds of, of politics. Of course, he's, he's uh, um, uh, engaged in you know, some self-criticism there and, and, and has distanced himself from that thesis. But there's something you know, else going on today. Maybe society is in constant motion, but it doesn't have this larger historical horizon and philosophy that, that was central to uh, totalitarianism. Uh, one of the features that it does have, and I'm trying to point at this in the paper, is the, uh, again, the, 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 the um, isolation of the individual. And this, is, this becomes really key to neoliberalism, right? What I was calling responsabilization. There, there is nothing like social solidarity any longer, it seems. Whereas the Keynesian welfare state was, was based very clearly on certain assumptions about social solidarity. Even on the left, the, the vocabulary of social solidarity, political solidarity, is, is, is really on the wane and this whole call-out culture and, and, and so on. So increasingly individuals face um, the, the social in, in, a, in, in this direct way. You know, it's, it's, it's me against everybody else. Uh, and I think that has to be, you know, uh, thought through um, uh, a little bit more. In terms of the leader, I, I think that there's a kind of uh, field of, of force um, that constitutes uh, leaders and followers and enemies. Um, if you look at this one speech that Trump gave at the end of April, hosted by the, the National Interest magazine, it was his foreign policy speech, that provides so much insight into the thinking of not just Trump, but people like that, insofar as um, he's talking about uh, really a, a Hobbesian world, so a world of, uh, of, of the war of all against all, right? It's a, it's a chaotic, uh, unstable world out there. We need to be clear on who our enemies are and who our friends are. Obama gets things exactly wrong because he's confusing our enemy for friend, namely Iran, our uh, friend for an enemy, namely Israel. So what Trump is going to get right is the relationship between friends and enemies. That way we're going to have the best foreign policy. It's going to be wonderful. you know. But uh, j joking aside, the key thing 
uh, about this speech and why it's so revelatory is because the foreign policy speech also entails domestic policy. But you can talk about domestic policy without talking about foreign policy, right? So he's talking about foreign policy and where the, the, the foreign meets or bleeds into the domestic is in talking about the enemy because the enemy crosses in uh, to the domestic, right? So this is Zimmel's idea of the stranger, right? The one who uh, comes from afar but stays near at hand. Um, and then has all these different qualities according to Zimmel, some good, some bad. Um, and what uh, Trump is saying is we need to identify that particular enemy as the uh, Islamic extremist, right? Uh, and we need to be very clear about who, who that, uh, that enemy is. Most recently, I think he was reciting a poem about the snake, right? Who, uh, and it's just this poem about this woman who finds a snake in the garden, the garden, uh, and um, uh, the snake has been hurt, and she brings it home and nurses it back to health. And you know, she goes off to work, and she comes back, and all of a sudden, the snake, you know, comes up beside her when she's sitting on the sofa and and bites her. Right? It's clear. It's it, it, you don't you don't have to be a literary critic to, to get the you know the, the the gist of what 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 he's he's after here. And so, I think that what he's trying to do is engage in a kind of performative speech act, right? Uh, where he is in that very speech, not just telling truths about the way the world is, but he's actually constituting the way the world is, right? Um, he's constituting the enemy in particular ways. Um, he is, as, uh, you know, as, as a, a, a capitalist par excellence, not a very successful one, but uh, you know, the, the embodiment of, of, of the neoliberal capitalist, he is constituting him, himself his followers and the relationship to the enemy. And this has to happen because increasingly the neoliberal order is one that is um, uh, increasingly anonymous, right? Um, and abstract. So that's why both friends and enemies have to be phenomenologically constituted uh, in, in this way through, through various rhetorics and through, through various spectacles. So I think that's, that's the way it's. Okay, we have time for a couple more questions or comments, and then I suggest that we uh, follow up at the bar, the uh, Canby Club. Can you join us for a drink? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering how we might understand Jairo's relatability here, because it's very different from Jairo's Islamicus. Islamicus started introducing to modernization and transformation. Elect yeah, exactly. Oh. Electing a person that allows it. Yeah. 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 I was wondering how that. No, I, this is good. I, I don't think it, it is so much an inversion. I, I, I mean, I think what you see 
with um, uh, figures like Trump, and you see this very directly in, in, um, uh, in, in his rallies, in the space of the rallies themselves, he is um, authorizing transgression, right? He's authorizing uh, uh, lawbreaking, he's authorizing violence, and actually saying, uh, if, uh, if any of you um, uh, is arrested, um, I will pay your legal, your legal bills. So that's a clear authorization. And I think this is um, also you know, what, uh, what Lewenthal and Guterman are, are talking about in uh, Prophets of Deceit. The agitator, um, unlike the revolutionary, who the, the revolutionary wants to provide an ob objective account of the sources of the fears and frustrations of the masses so as to transform those conditions and dissipate the frustration and fear by creating a, a, a better order, the agitator, and I think Trump is one, and I think Modi is a great example of the agitator, where um, uh, the agitator uh, invites the masses to express the fear and the frustration uh, at a, a given enemy or enemies, um, and then authorizes, it, by virtue of that, violence that's directed at them in the form of pogroms, in the form of, as, as they say in, in, in the Indian context, uh, communalist violence. There's, uh, there's a political scientist at, at, at um, uh, JNU who argues that on the, on the left, there's a problem with casteism, right? The, a, a kind of um, uh, authoritarian residue of casteism in that those on the left are very concerned about casteism in a sense from, from here up but they're not so concerned about the casteism that prevails from here down, right? So in other words, as, as long as I'm not uh, so affected by caste prejudice, okay, you know, uh, but insofar as I am, then it's, a, then it's a problem for me. So I think this is, this is also part of the phenomenon. This, this is how it, it can help us understand it. I, I think you're right though about um, uh, Modi being all for uh, modernization, whereas some uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups are at least putatively against it, but at the same time, they have to work within it, right? Um, uh, Daesh has to, to sell oil in order to raise revenue. It must use a fairly rational um, uh, and, and, and bureaucratic state setup to enforce uh, its, uh, its writ uh, within its territories and so on. So they have to also, to some extent, play, play the game. Saudi Arabia uh, has to do this, the, the same thing. So I, I think there's different ways, of, uh, of, uh, um, a different ways in which these regimes forge a, a balance between a kind of authoritarianism and, and a, a degree of um, uh, observance of, you know, of, of market mechanisms and, and uh, uh, commodification. Yes, excellent. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is good. Yeah. Mm. Um, Thank you. Uh, Very quick. Um, I I would say that at the very origins of neoliberalism, okay, 1949 in uh, in the Federal Republic, uh, 1973, the coup in in, in Chile, there there are connections uh, between violence uh, overt uh, or, or covert, um, and uh, the the establishment of neoliberal uh, uh, policies in Thatcher's uh, Britain, you have um, a migration of fascism, really, from the the NF, the National Front, that really saw its uh, its fortunes rise with the arrival of the Asians in in 1972. Right? My my own family was was kicked out, extended families kicked out of Uganda, ended up in Britain, and that led to a massive backlash by the far right, which Thatcher then uh, capitalized on. Um, and so there was this appeal to the nation, um, to the imperial glories of the past and so on, uh, under which neoliberal policies were put into place. Those two are necessary, they, they belong together hand in glove. They're, they're, there's a necessary, I think, relationship there of politics exclusion, inclusion. So uh, this, the second point is, um, I think we need to specify what we, need, what we mean by authority. The authoritarian personality um, bows down to, um, to heteronymous forms of authority, authorities that he or she doesn't participate in constituting, whereas the democratic personality is one who uh, adheres to their own self-directed uh, uh, form of authority, and therefore it's very much, I think it's pretty much uh, synonymous with a kind of anarchistic uh, uh, personality. I, I see anarchism as a theory of radical uh, uh, democracy. I'm not talking, when I talk about democratic personality, I'm not talking about uh, democracy in the form of represent, representative uh, democracy, but rather a different model, one in which, again, we have, we have uh, uh, control together o- over our, our own lives. We give ourselves the law rather than the law being imposed upon us. And I think that is, that is a really key uh, idea. And it's really ultimately an enlightenment idea. And it's where you know, figures like Rousseau and Kant converge with psychoanalysis. But they're also taken through a more radical turn through, through critical theory. And, and figures like Foucault and, and, and others who, who are in, interpreting that, that tradition in liberatory ways. Yeah. Um, time for one last question? Do we have time to? Last one? Well, I would say, to that last point, I would say that if, if you um, take seriously your commitment to radical democracy, then there's no question of not working with people who um, 
are outside of your, your immediate sphere of experience, right? Uh, um, how that actually gets configured, though, is, is, as everybody, I'm sure, in this room knows, is fraught with all kinds of problems. Uh, how that gets worked through, then, I think, has to be a matter of uh, an ongoing kind of discussion within, within the groups. Um, it's, not, it's not for me to say, but I think, just to answer that, that, that last bit of your question, I think it's really, really central, again, uh, to, to, uh, to reiterate this point, that if, if, if you align yourself with radical democratic politics, it, it, you can't live within your bubble of, of as you say, privilege. Uh, that, that, that's for starters. At the same time, I, I think that where, where I was suggesting a critique of authoritarianism on the left is a, perhaps a critique of uh, the, the, the call-out culture, where you know, a political meeting then simply devolves into everybody talking about how privileged they actually are and f facing themselves. I think that itself is the, 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 the biggest form of privilege because people confronting Golden Dawn in Greece don't really have that, uh, that luxury. They're out defending you know, um, uh, asylum seekers who, who are in the clutches of, uh, of, of fascists on the streets. I'm dramatizing somewhat, but I'm saying there's a different context right? that we also have to be mindful of. What is the situation of the left? The left in, in, in the Punjab, for example, um, where student leaders are being, uh, are, are being executed by, uh, by the state apparatus. We have to, I think, have a cosmopolitan perspective and say, yes, there is a context here in Vancouver, uh, here in BC, in Canada, where politics are articulated in, in a certain kind of way. But we also have to be mindful of other contexts as well. Um, and I think that's what Hannah Arendt talks about in terms of judgment, of being able to put oneself in, in, in the place of, of the other. And that other isn't simply a part of our political community, but part of other political communities. Um, in terms of self-organization, I think when I'm talking about the strong ego structure. I'm talking about the woman who, um, uh, the, the Walmart employee, the African-American woman who gets a hat made saying America was never great, right? She's consciously saying, fuck you, right? I'm going to express what I, th I truly think. She faces death threats for that, right? But she has a courage to make that kind of uh, an intervention, to stand up and say what, what she thinks, to make an intervention that's critical in, in, the, in, the, in the public sphere. I think that's the, the beginning of, of, of the kind of self-organization. You're talking about impulse, right, to, to make that intervention. The, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter's uh, uh, interventions have been hugely important for, for um, standing up on, on matters of principle against the, 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 the racist tide of, of, of the United States. So I think those kinds of interventions are, are, are really key. And I think they take a lot of courage and a lot of psychological strength to, to, to manage. Um, so does that answer your question? Thank you. All right, so I think... Thank you, Samir. Yeah, thank you.